0: Well, those are very familiar words, aren't they? Certainly the most famous of the psalms, the most well-recognized of the psalms, widely-recognized psalm. And for good reason. We find so uh, tenderly portrayed in this psalm God's tender care for his people. In fact, it's impossible, my friends, to identify any kind of historical situation That this psalm applies to, as if maybe David wrote this when he was in such a case, or when he was shepherding his sheep, or when he was in battle, or when he was feeling this way or that way. It's just a psalm that seems to be timeless and situationless. It is just a a psalm that David wrote, that he penned, and, and it applies not just to David, but it applies to all the people of God in all times, and in all places, and in all situations. It's just a beautiful psalm. Such a spirit of confidence, and of trust, and of faith that it breathes in every verse. That it's won, it's, it's won a place, hasn't it, in the hearts of God's people, throughout all time. Uh, even in the hearts of children. Because the, the picture is so simple, Right? There's no uh, scholarship required to understand this psalm. It's so simple that the children can understand it, and yet it's so deep, isn't it? It is, it is too deep for anybody here, really, to plumb the depth of this psalm. And I thought that this week, as I, I thought about the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, to use this psalm, especially verse 5, You prepare a table before me. That's the text for this morning. You prepare a table before me. Because that's what God has done for us this morning. He prepares a table for us. But of course, the psalm says much more about that. And that's what I'd like to consider with you as we prepare our hearts to eat and drink with the Lord at a table that he prepares. So, so much for the introduction then. In this psalm, we find that is mentioned a valley. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley. We find a table in our text. Verse 5, you prepare a table. And in the third place, we find a home or a house. Verse 6, and I will dwell in the house. Well, let's consider these three things then. A valley, a table, and a home. First, the valley. My friends, to live is to suffer to live in this life is to suffer there is no vacation or release from suffering so long as we are in this life and that 's why the life is often referred to uh, as a valley as a, a deep, dark place, and also in this in this psalm, uh, we are told that the psalmist is walking through. The valley of the shadow of death. Now, the word death is not actually there in the Hebrew, but it, it, the, the, it's, it's given there as a, as a translation uh, to show it's the deepest kind of darkness. It is a death like darkness. I've always been struck by our baptismal form, which has the words in it this life, which is nothing but a continual death. That's not very bright. That's not very encouraging, is it? This life, which is nothing but a continual death. And yet it's true, isn't it? This life is so often compared, to so often like this valley. Now, one of the reasons this valley is so dark is because of the presence of enemies. We read that in verse 5 that God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Not only is the valley dark, but there are enemies present there that cause a great deal of alarm and distress to the people of God. Now, who are these enemies? The psalm, of course, does not make it clear. It does not speak specifically of who these enemies are. Now, we could have turned to a lot of different places in Scripture to know the enemies of God. For myself, I found... Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 to give us these enemies. And if you would turn with me there to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have a description given us of these enemies. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54. For the Apostle Paul writes, but when this perishable, that is is, uh, this perishable body, will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So here we meet the first enemy, and the first enemy that is given us is death. And we are promised in this scripture, my friends, that death is a conquered enemy. And that one day it will be thoroughly conquered. And it will be swallowed up in victory. But still, an enemy it is. An enemy it is. Death. And you know, and I think probably the, the Sunday school children will even remember this, right? The catechism. That you learned that death has three different... There are three different kinds of death. Explicitly in our text, or in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, we meet with physical death, right? Physical death, right? The perishable, in other words, the dying, will put on the imperishable, the undying. The mortal will put on the immortal. That is what we call physical death, right? It is a separation between body and soul. That happens when a person dies. The soul returns to God who gave it, and the body is placed in the grave. Physical death. But also we see here in in 1 Corinthians 15, spiritual death, right? That, That is the separation between God and the sinner, right? Because of sin. Sin brings that separation between God and his favor and his grace and his love and the sinner. So there is a spiritual death. And you see that also in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Because it talks about the sting of death is sin. Now, sin is what brings us spiritual death. So there's also spiritual death here, and we're promised a victory over sin in verse 57. Now, the least visible kind of death in this particular, in these uh, verses, in 1 Corinthians 15, is eternal death. However, I think even eternal death is given us here. Notice at the very end of verse 56, you have the power of sin is the law, the law. And my friends, that implies to us that because of our sin and our guilt before God, when we stand before his law, we will be condemned. We will be condemned to eternal death unless our sin and our guilt is forgiven us. So we see this, this, this triple-headed enemy, as it were, physical, spiritual, and eternal death that comes before us. And that in Psalm 23, we're told that as we walk through this valley, this dark valley, we come face-to-face with this enemy, which is death. Now I'm going to stay in 1 Corinthians 15 here as I discuss now the second enemy. I'm going to call this enemy the cancer because there's a reason that death has a claim on us. There's a reason that death can come and take over us, and that is sin. We're told in verse 56 of 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. This is the cancer, right, that is spreading throughout our bodies, that brings us death. This is the cause of death. Of death, And so this also is an enemy that we face as we walk through the valley of this life, through the valley of this world, death and the cause of death, which is sin. That's enemy number two. Now, in the third place, we have an enemy. And I've called this enemy the lab technician. Because in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 56, we read the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. Because, my friends, as we have this death taking hold of us, and taking hold of us because we have sinned, we have also a lab tech who comes with the blood work, the biopsy, the x-rays. And he says, there's the sin. You see, that's what the law does, my friends. The law exposes and, and makes clear the sin that we have. That's what happens, right? And we don't even know, even now, what we're carrying around with us in our bodies, do we? Until we feel an ache or a pain or some other symptom. And we go to the doctor. And the x-ray report comes back or the blood work or the biopsy. Ah, here's the problem. Now we know the truth. And my friends, in the same way, we have this third enemy. And here, it's, maybe we hesitate, even as I did, to call this an enemy, right? Because, of course, the law is simply God's will. The law comes from God. It's perfect in every respect. And yet, Scripture calls the law, in this sense, our enemy. Because it demands our punishment. Because the law comes and exposes our sin. And makes clear to us the cancer that is within us. The guilt that we have. That makes death have a claim on us. So death can come and lay hold of us because we are sinners. And the lab tech comes and says, yes, this man is guilty. This man has this cancer. This man has sin. And so we have a, a three-fold a enemy here. Death, sin, and the law. And the law demands satisfaction. It demands that the punishment be, be, dealt, uh, be dealt upon the sinner for his sin and his guilt. And so, my friends, I want you to see that picture this morning. I want you to see, I want you to, maybe in a sense, even feel. I want you to feel that picture of being in this valley. It is dark. There are dangers lurking on every side. There are enemies. There is death without us. There is sin within us. There is the law condemning us. And in this valley, my friends, we can begin to wonder, what is God thinking of me now? that's the beauty of our text, my friends, in the second place, that in verse five, we read that God prepares a table for us in the presence of those enemies. In the face of those enemies, God spreads a table. He puts food on that table. He puts drink on that table. There's a chair there for us. We have a place at that table. Death steps forward at this point. Death is the first enemy. It says, I have a claim on this man. He has the cancer of sin within him. He belongs to me. But God says, no. I prepare a table here in the presence of the enemies. But death, you have no place at this table. There's no chair for you here. This table is prepared before the enemies, in the presence of the enemies. But there's no place for them here at this table. The lab tech can come forward. The law can come forward and say, well, I have a claim on this man. Here are the test results. This man has sinned against God. He has come into guilt. God's law demands satisfaction. God's law demands that this man be punished. He can have no place at this table. But God says, no. Step back, law. Step back, Mr. Lab Technician. You have no place at this table either. But I have a claim on this man. No, you don't. Step back. I prepare a table in the presence of these enemies, before them. But those enemies have to stand back now. They have no place there. They have to stand back. And all their voices are silenced. And God spreads a table here. The enemies have no place there. I put that beautiful text from Deuteronomy in there. Happy are you, O Israel. This was uh, the the song of Moses at the end of the the book of Deuteronomy. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Who, that is God, is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies shall cringe before you, and you shall tread upon their high places. That's what happens, my friends, in Psalm 23 and verse 5. Now, God spreads this table, and the enemies have to stand back. All they can do is cringe. God says there's no place for you here. Now, this table that we read about in Psalm 23 does not tell us why or how God can do that. Because, my friends, let's be clear, death really does have a just claim upon us. Death is not lying. It's true that we have sinned, and we've come to guilt. We are, our status is guilty before God. The lab technician is not lying. The law does not lie to us. The law really does expose the cancer of sin within us. But there is a reason, right? It's not given us in Psalm 23, but it is given us here on this table, my friends. On this table that we have spread before us this morning, the reason is given us. That an atonement has been made. That the body of Christ was torn and nailed to a cross. As an atonement for our sins. That his blood dripped upon that ground. Was poured out. That spear was thrust into his side. For our sin. And he was a sin offering. Made atonement for our sins. And because of that. God can now say to the enemies. Stand back. Yes you have a claim upon this man. But there's another man. There's the son of David. The Messiah king whose birth we celebrate in this time of year, who gave his life an offering for their sin. And I have smelled that aroma, says God. I have seen that smoke, that sacrifice has come up unto me. And my wrath has been taken away. And so now, death, you don't have a claim anymore. You don't have a claim because of the sacrifice that is represented to us on this table. That much is not given us in Psalm 23, but it's certainly given us here on this table when Jesus said, This is my body broken for you. For you, my friends. And what else does God do? Let's go back to Psalm 23. The enemies say, This person can't sit at that table. But what does God say? You have anointed my head with oil. God brings us forward, my friends. We hear what death says. We feel the presence of sin within us. We see the claims of the lab tech. We see the claims of the laws that comes against us. And our hearts fail. We have nothing to say against it. We have no defense to make on our behalf. But God steps forward, my friends. And because of this sacrifice, he anoints our head with oil. And what does that mean, my friends? In the ancient Near East, the oils would have been poured upon a person who had a place at that table. It was, you might say, a sign of welcome. It was a sign of being received and to have a place here, to sit. And the more luxurious the oils and the different kinds of oils that were anointed upon people and the lovely fragrance that they had would fill the air. And so, my friends, when we sink in despair under the weight of our sins and the the, the accusations of the law against us, God steps forward and he anoints our heads with oil. That, my friends, it's more than just receiving an invitation in the mail. This is as if God now takes us by the hand. As if he pulls out that chair and he gives us a place there. And he sits us down. And perhaps we even can object, my friends, just like the enemies around us. Say, but Lord. But also the enemy within us has to be silenced. You have a place here. He anoints our head with oil. And he gives us a place at the table. And as we sit there, my friends, and as we contemplate the privilege of what's really taking place in this psalm, that God gives us such a place, even in the face of all these enemies against us, our cup overflows. God fills that cup up. He fills it to the top. He provides us with every good thing. And our cup overflows. What a blessing, my friends, and what a privilege to sit and to have a place at that table. But then, my friends, in the last verse, he speaks to us of a home, a house. And this speaks to us of a future. What a privilege it is to sit at that table. But now David also says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. At that table, my friends, David can rejoice And as I said at the beginning, this psalm is for all the Davids in the world, all the sinners who can reflect upon how unworthy they are, that now because of of what God has given them at this table, they can take hope, they can take hold of that precious promise that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That means I'll always have a place at this table. There will always be a place for me there. And no matter what may come in the future, no matter what valley I might have to face, no matter what valley I may have to face, I'll still have a place at that table. You know, my friends, I found it interesting this week as I studied that it says in verse 3, he guides me in the paths of righteousness. And then in verse 4 it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. My friends, do you understand that the psalm is saying in there that God leads me on the paths of righteousness, and one of those paths goes through the valley. The psalm does not say, and it does not teach us this morning, that God will smooth out all the valleys, that God will take away every obstacle, that God will take away every hardship. No. One of the paths that God will lead us on in his righteousness and in his faithfulness goes through that dark valley. But in that dark valley, my friends, he is with me. And you can feel on the left hand his rod and on the right hand his stab as they guide you and steer you through that valley to this table. Where he gives us a place, where he anoints us with oil, he fills our cup, and he gives us this, and I love that word, surely, in verse 6. Surely. Surely. And that's the experience, my friends, of a person who sat at God's table that he says, surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. That's the surely of faith. That's the surely of faith that has experienced God's hand in the valley. And that even as we come out of that valley, maybe into a brighter day, there's probably another valley coming. But no matter what may lay in that future, his goodness and his loving kindness follow me all the days of my life. Oh, well, what a precious psalm, my friends, to consider as we sit down at the Lord's table that he makes for us this morning. Let us now take the, uh, the form and prepare then uh, and read the rest of the form that's been given us. This is form number one. And we're going to turn now to the part called Celebrating Our Salvation in Christ on page 39. On page 39 of the Forms and Prayers book, it looks like this, should be in the pew in front of you. And on page 39, you'll see Celebrating Our Salvation in Christ. We already read the previous sections in the, uh, last week. The Institution of the Supper and the Call to Self-Examination. We come now to Celebrating Our Salvation in in Christ, page 39. Let us also consider the purpose for which our Lord has instituted his supper, that we should do this in remembrance of him. And this is how we remember him by it. First, let us be fully persuaded in our hearts that our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the promises made to our forefathers in the Old Testament, was sent by the Father into this world, that he assumed our flesh and blood, that he took upon himself for us the wrath of God, under which we should have perished eternally, that from the beginning of his incarnation until the end of his life on earth, he fulfilled for us all obedience and righteousness of the divine law. This was especially evident when the weight of our sins and of the wrath of God caused him to sweat drops of blood in the garden. He was bound so that we might be loosed from our sins, and afterward he suffered countless insults so that we might never be put to shame. Let us confidently believe that he was innocent, yet put to death, that we might be acquitted on the day of judgment. That he even allowed his own blessed body to be nailed to the cross, so as to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing so, he took from us the curse and bore it himself, so that he might fill us with his blessing. He humbled himself to the very deepest reproach and anguish of hell in body and soul on the cross when he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did all of this so that we might be accepted by God, never to be rejected by him. Indeed, with his death and the shedding of his blood, he confirmed the new and eternal covenant, the covenant of grace and reconciliation when he said, It is finished. In order that we might firmly believe that we belong to this covenant of grace, during the last supper Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, As a sure reminder and pledge, you shall be admonished and assured of my great love and faithfulness toward you, because you otherwise would have suffered eternal death. I give my body and blood for you in my death on the cross. And as certainly as this bread is broken before you, and this cup is given to you, and with your mouth you eat and drink in remembrance of me, so surely do I nourish and refresh for everlasting life your hungry and thirsty souls with my crucified body and shed blood. From the institution of this Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he directs our faith to his perfect sacrifice, once offered on the cross, as the only foundation of our salvation. By this sacrifice he has become to our hungry and thirsty souls the true food and drink of life eternal. For by his death he has taken away the cause of our eternal death and misery, our sin. He has obtained for us the life-giving spirit, who dwells in Christ our head and enables us who are his members to have communion with him and be made partakers of his riches, including eternal life, righteousness, and glory. Besides, by this same Spirit, we are also united as members of one body in true Christian love. As the Apostle Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As many grains are ground to prepare one loaf of bread, and as many grapes are pressed together to produce wine, so we who by true faith are incorporated into Christ shall be one body through Christian love for the sake of our dear Savior Jesus Christ. He loved us so greatly in order that we might show his love toward one another, not only in words, but also in deeds. May the Almighty merciful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, help us in this, through his Holy Spirit. Amen. That we may obtain all these blessings, let us humble ourselves before God, and with true faith implore him for his grace. We'll say this prayer now, and at the close of this prayer, we'll say together the Lord's Prayer. But let us all pray. Merciful God and Father, We cherish the blessed memory of the death and sufferings of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that in this supper you will so work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that with true confidence we might give ourselves up more and more unto your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this might allow our burdened and contrite hearts to be nourished and refreshed with the true body and blood of him who is true God and true man, the only heavenly bread. Empower us to no longer live in our sins. Knowing that He lives in us and we in Him. May we truly be partakers of the new and everlasting covenant of grace. May we not doubt that You will forever be our gracious Father, who does not impute the guilt of our sins to us and who provides us with all that we need for body and soul. As Your dear children and heirs, grant us also Your grace that we may take up our cross cheerfully, deny ourselves, confess Our Savior, And in all tribulation, with uplifted head, expect our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. There he will make our mortal bodies like unto his glorified body, and take us to be with him in eternity. Answer us, O God and merciful Father, through Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Congregation, let's rise then and repeat the Apostles' Creed. You may stand, please. By this Holy Supper... May we also be strengthened in the Catholic, undoubted Christian faith, of which we make profession with heart and mouth, saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. that we may be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread. Let us not cling with our hearts to external things like bread and wine, but lift our hearts to heaven where our advocate Jesus Christ is at the right hand of his heavenly Father, where the articles of our Christian faith direct us. Let us not doubt that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with his body and blood through the working of the Holy Spirit as truly as we receive the holy bread and drink in remembrance of him. Dear congregation, the bread which we break is a communion with the body of Christ. Dear friends, as the bread is distributed, I would ask you to think this morning, dear friends, of the week that you had and whether you may have heard from the enemies in the past week as we heard from this psalm. The enemy that comes and says you have no place at this table. The enemy that throws back in your face the sins you committed in your life. The sins which are painful memories in your own life. And the sins which the enemies, which death and the law can bring back to our minds. The enemies which argue that you have no place here. But my friends, this bread and this wine argue from God himself that a full atonement has been made for those sins. And that even though the enemy has a just claim upon you, that claim has been met in Jesus Christ. And because of what's represented here, in the broken bread and the poured out wine, you can have a place here. And you do have a place here. And that in the face of those enemies, God anoints your head with oil. He pulls out the chair here, and he welcomes you to that table. That is a wonder, my, my friends, of free and sovereign grace. That God prepares us a table in the valley, in the dark valley, and that that table is even in the face of, of all our enemies. What a wonder that is, my friends. And what a, what a blessing to consider it. And not only to consider it in our minds, but also to see it. That God will not just speak it to us, which he does Lord's Day after Lord's Day. But that he represents it visibly for us this morning. And says, as surely as this bread is broken, and as surely as this wine is poured out, so surely have all your sins been forgiven you. Only, of course, as we take hold of it by faith. Dear friends, take, eat, remember and believe that the body of Christ was broken for a complete forgiveness of all our sins. Dear congregation, the cup of blessing which we bless is a communion with the blood of Christ. My friends, these little cups are coming to you now. And in the 23rd Psalm, the psalmist and all God's people reflect, my cup overflows. That the cup which God gives us is not one of these small cups as we have here, but it's a f- large cup. And it overflows with God's goodness and with his provision for us. And again, in the face of all what the enemies may say, God gives us this cup, a full cup. And in a sense, this little cup that we have here, my friends, testifies to us that this is not the ultimate table that we seek for. That there is another table. That there is another house. Here we don't experience that yet. We only have a foretaste of it. We only have a little cup here. But there is a day coming, my friends. Last week, one of our members was brought into that place, into that eternal house. He was brought to that table where he can say, surely, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I hope, my friends, that as a congregation, as a church family, we can reflect together. on what a beautiful thing that is. What an ugly thing death is. What a, what a frightening thing it is. But with the eyes of faith, if we could see in the death of one of our members, in a sense, what is represented to us in that little cup. All we have here is a table, my friends. Just some broken bread, some little cups of wine. But this table represents to us that there's another table. That there is a table on high, my friends, in the new Jerusalem, in the house of God. And by faith, my friends, we can say, surely... And that little cup represents that this morning. That little cup represents, surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a happy promise that is, my friends. That's really so much of what is represented here. It's just a, a taste of something that is yet to come. I hope, my friends, that as we taste this wine and as we reflect on the bitterness of the death of Christ that it represents, that it would also be a sweet wine showing us the hope that comes one day when we shall leave this table, when we shall leave these little cups behind, and when we shall come into the house of our Father, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I pray, my friends, that that this morning we might say, surely, surely, as you drink, surely. friends, take, drink, remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for a complete forgiveness of all our sins. Beloved in the Lord, since the Lord has now nourished our souls at his table, let us together praise his holy name with thanksgiving, and let everyone say in his heart, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases who redeemed your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's from Psalm 103. Now from Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then from Romans chapter 5. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Therefore, my mouth and heart shall show forth the praise of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let us now all pray. O merciful God and Father, we thank you with all our heart that of your boundless mercy you have given us your only begotten Son for a mediator, the sacrifice for our sins. And as our food and drink unto life eternal, we also thank you that you give us a true faith whereby we become partakers of these benefits. You have united us to Christ and to each other in the communion of saints. You have given your Son for us and to us and have proclaimed his saving death to the whole world, having signified and sealed the atoning sacrifice of your Son for us, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, also make us witnesses to this good news among our neighbors. Strengthen us in faith to live gratefully in this present age as we await our Savior's return in glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, take our blue hymnals and sing to God's praise, number 111. And if you would please stay seated for the uh, benevolent offering, which will be collected during the singing of number 111. And then after, you can stand for the doxology. So we'll sing number 111, O Lord, my God, most earnestly, my heart would seek thy face. And in verse 3, My Savior, neath thy sheltering wings, my soul delights to dwell we'll sing the three verses of Psalm 100 Psalter or, uh, number 111 in the blue hymnal